When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There is a difference between good debt and bad debt, right? Consumer credit is bad debt, but good debt would be investing in real estate where you're actually investing for cash flow, which a lot of people, they don't understand the difference. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. You're listening to the premier podcast for men who want to not only be better with women, but want to be better men in general. This is the Come On Man podcast. And here's your host, Paul Bauer. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another week of Come On Man. If you haven't done so already, please like, subscribe, hit those notifications. You should know what to do by now. I say this every week. Guys, sound off in the live if you guys are watching this during the live premiere on Mondays. Um, I'm usually in there while I'm editing videos, but if not, if you're watching the replay, drop a comment below your favorite emoji. It doesn't really matter. It all helps boost us in the algorithms. And if you guys are listening on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please leave a five-star review. It helps more than you know. Guys, you can send super chats during these pre-records. I just can't share them on the screen, but I will screenshot them on the back end because I do get notifications of them. So I will screenshot them on the back end and I will make sure I share that on social media if you guys want to do that and support the show that way. Um, follow me on all social media. The links are in the description. I'm on all the good platforms. Get on the email list, guys, because I my uh I, I started the email list because we don't have control over these platforms as creators. You know what I mean? So they could kick us off anytime they don't like what we're saying. And I'm on my third TikTok account. In fact, my third one is on an account warning right now. My second account shadow banned. My first account was completely banned. So if you guys like what I'm putting out there, follow me on social or follow me on social all social medias for one and then also get on the email list that way i could email you and let you know when i have a new account or or what i'm doing right guys get the book everything i wish i knew when i was 18 it's available at books.comeonmanpod.com that will redirect you to my amazon authors page where you can get the audible edition which is narrated by rp thor you can get the kindle edition you can get the paperback the hardcover the special edition all that stuff's available if you go to books.comeonmanpod.com. Check out my practical law of attraction course, guys. LOA.comeonmanpod.com. It's a mindset course. And once you get your mind right, everything else falls into place. Join the beer club. Beer.comeonmanpod.com. Our next meetup is January 18th. January 18th at 7 p.m. Eastern time. All right. And we meet up once a month. Just have beers. Just have, you know, it's a good outlet for guys to get together and talk about guys stuff. Right. And then finally, coaching's available at gumroad.comeonmanpod.com. All right, guys, this week, my guest is a fellow Dragonship member. He's also kind of a financial guru, and he reached out to me after reading everything I wish I knew when I was 18, and he goes, Paul, I wish you would have gotten a hold of me about your Everyone Can Be Rich chapter. And I was like, oh my God, did I put out bad information? He was like, no, actually it was really good. I just wanted to, I wish I could have collaborated with you on it. <laughs> and then he sent me right before this interview, he goes, I, I hate to admit it, you know, cause he, he talks 
financial investing and stuff like that. He goes, but the method that you break down in your book will actually beat a lot of professional um, portfolio managers. My, my method that I break down the book will beat professional portfolio managers when it comes to your investments. So if you guys want to learn about investing, I break it down so damn simply, you could, like a child could follow this. Okay. So it's in my, uh, everyone could be, anyone could be rich chapter. All right. So we're going to talk a little bit about that today. We also talk about other things, right? Like uh, he disagrees with, with me when I say that your house is the biggest investment you'll ever have because a lot of people, including, including my guest, look at your house as a liability. Uh, Robert Kiyosaki is like that, right? So we get into that today. Why is it that your house is, is a liability and not an asset? Talk about all sorts of stuff like that. His name is Laurent Bernou, and he's a fellow Dragon Ship member. You've probably seen him. He's a smart guy. You've probably seen him uh, on John MLD's channel. And I'll bring you that conversation right after these words. Life is a journey filled with twists and turns. Why is it that essential life lessons aren't taught in school? You probably know that the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell, but do you know how to invest in a Roth IRA? We're not taught to build ourselves mentally, physically, and spiritually. The roadmap to success is more than just a college degree. You don't have to follow the traditional route. Success isn't confined to a classroom. It's about discovering your own path. You ever wish that someone handed you a guidebook to life when you were 18? Well, it's never too late to rewrite your story. Everything I wish I knew when I was 18. Advice for young men to create a great life for themselves. This book is your compass, guiding you to pick the right career, how to invest wisely, and how to prepare for a fulfilling future. To take control of your health and your fitness, learn how to date efficiently and find genuine desire, and master the art of leading healthy relationships. Your path is defined by the choices you make, not by others' expectations. Don't wait until you're 35 to unlock your potential. Order your copy now on Amazon. Rewrite your story. Build the life you deserve. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. All right, joining me on the podcast is a fellow Dragonship member and a little bit of a guru when it comes to investing in various markets. He just happens to be the biggest foreign retail investor in Japanese real estate in Japan. He's Laurent Bernou. Did I pronounce that right? Laurent Bernou, but yeah, that was close enough. Bernou. Okay. Much. Yeah. The T is silent. Okay. What's, what's going on, brother? I appreciate it. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. I'm honored. Um, so Laurent recently read my book, everything I wish I knew when I was 18. And I have a chapter titled Anyone Can Be Rich that really focuses on investing for retirement. Now, Laurent read the book and said, Paul, I wish you would have collaborated with me on this. And I immediately went into panic mode. I was like, oh, my God, did I did I put out <laughs> incorrect information? Because I know Laurent <laughs> is like a little bit of a guru when it comes to this stuff. And But that wasn't the case. Like, largely, he said what I laid out 
Um, well, largely what I laid out is the Dave Ramsey method with a couple of slight differences. Uh, namely, I recommend low-cost index funds over standard mutual funds, and I recommend rebalancing your portfolio every year. Um, now, you said that the Dave Ramsey method is good intermediate level information when it comes to investing. So what I wanted to ask you is how does one go from intermediate level, like this type of stuff, to expert level? All right. So first, what is expert level? So, I mean, I really want, I really commend you for, for the effort that you put in the book because it, it, you managed to vulgarize. And vulgarization is making accessible, is digest difficult information into practical, actionable tips. Like, okay, you need to do this, you need to do that. And very few people, uh, I mean, and this is, this is when you know you deal with somebody who's intelligent, who understands the subject because it's very easy to obfuscate, to make it too like intimidate with complexity. Mm. And whereas you did the other way around, like, okay, I get that stuff. I practice that stuff. I succeeded. Now here's what you should know. So I really, really commend you for that. Now, I mean, and when we look at all those gurus, for instance, uh, we have uh, Dame Ramsey. Who do we have next? We have Morgan Housel. We have uh, all the, uh, a lot of people. When we look at them, who do they stand in the spectrum? Even Tony Robbins, where do they stand in the spectrum? Because, for instance, is I mean, getting out of debt is the step one. If you do, personally, I'm nine million dollars in debt, and I wish I could be thirty million dollars in debt. Now, this is not something people want to hear. Why do they? But there is a, there is a difference between good debt and negative and bad debt, right? Consumer credit is bad debt, but good debt would be, you know, investing in real estate where you're actually investing for cash flow, uh, which a lot of people just don't understand. They don't understand the difference. You know, is this right. debt that you're borrowing? Is it making you money? If, that, oh, yeah. if it's making you money, it's good debt. If it's not, well, it's bad debt. Would right. you say that's true? That's accurate? That's exactly it. That's exactly it. So Dev Ramsey is really good when it comes to consumer finance. Dev Ramsey, Ramit City, the two are, I mean, they're not interchangeable because of different approaches, but the two take people and look at the consumer credit, the, the consumer debt, and then, the okay, how can we get you out of that and how can you get to stability? So that's fantastic. So that's step one. If you have consumer credit debt, if you have credit card, first, if you have credit card, only keep two or three. And uh, you also talked about the very good way of how to get out of it is start with a smaller balance, the smallest balance. It's not the highest interest, the smallest balance, and then it has a knock-on effect. And the way the brain works is actually there's a dopamine jolt. Oh, wow, I succeeded at something. Cool. And then do it. I would add also one more thing to, to it is, uh, and this is something that... Uh, it's out of sight, out of mind. So meaning like if you have, if let's say you, you have a, you have a, your salary of two, three, five, ten thousand dollars it doesn't really matter. Then get a separate account, make incorporate a separate account and then service your debt from there. So as okay. soon as your money comes to your account, you make a, you transfer there. And this account over time will also be the investment, the, the automated investing account. So, you never get to see because psychologically, if I get, let's say I get $10,000 for the sake of simplicity, $10,000 a month for the sake of simplicity. If I know that if I see $10,000 lending on my account, I would probably spend about $9,998 somewhere, 
close to that. But if I see like, oh shit, I only have six thousand or seven thousand dollars, I'll spend six thousand nine hundred and ninety-eight dollars. I think that's so what most does... people do. Yeah, they is they see that big chunk of money and they immediately go and it burns a hole in their pocket and they've got to go spend it on something. That's how my that's how my son is. When as soon as he gets twenty dollars, Dad, can I go blow it on video game bullshit? I'm like, no, like let's 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 use do this smartly. And that, that's exactly what I do. Now Dave Ramsey teaches uh, the envelope method, which I think is archaic, and I I don't <laughs> I don't agree with that. Uh, but for a lot of banks, mine included, I bank with USAA. They allow you to open up as many checking accounts as you want, and so I sort of use his envelope method, but with like virtually using different checking accounts. So I have a I have a bills account and an investment account, and and when I get paid. Uh, I pay myself first, you know, I pay, I pay my, my, uh, investment funds and all that kind of stuff first. Then I, you know, I have a, a, a budget and I take all the money from my budget and I put it in my bills account where all, everything gets paid out of the bills account. And then whatever's left over is my fuck around money. You know, that's the way, that's the way I, I do things. That's how I teach my kids how to do things. Um, I don't really break down the budgeting stuff in the book. I probably could have added that in there but whatever that's a room for improvement for the next book i guess but <laughs> but that's how i do it and, and to come back to your question so dev ramsey and ramit seti they are the initial building blocks mm -hmm. and then after that you want to move on to robert kiyosaki or demarco and so on and so forth so for instance i'm, I'm like if you if you give robert kiyosaki to somebody who's deep down consumer credit debt that's it's game over like it's bankruptcy within two years because they don't understand yet you got to learn yeah. to walk before you can move, march on. So, for instance, the perspective on owning a house is very different from somebody who comes from Robert Kiyosaki than somebody who comes from Dave Ramsey mm -hmm. because they're not at the same place in the cycle. And what is important is where are you in your cycle of money? Yeah. Yeah, good point. And yeah, you bring up DeMarco. You're talking about MJ DeMarco? Yeah. Yeah, MJ DeMarco. One thing I don't think I touch on in the book, but I might have mentioned it. But MJ DeMarco refers to Dave Ramsey's method as the slow lane to wealth. And he, he has a book called The Fast Lane to Wealth or The Fast, Fast Lane to Riches, something like that. The Millionaire Fast Lane, that's what it's called. And he talks about how Dave Ramsey didn't get rich by following his method. Dave Ramsey got rich by starting a business and selling you courses and books on how to invest. You know, it's like, oh, it's something to think about. It's like, oh, never thought about that. But, you know, uh, Dave Ramsey, now he did develop his method because he did find himself in, uh, a, he had, he, he was overextended in loans and he had all those loans called in at once and he almost went into bankruptcy. So he did develop his method, the snowball method to get out of that debt. And so that's what he teaches now, but that's not what made him filthy rich. It's, it's the books and his program and stuff that made him filthy rich. Now, what is interesting about uh, DeMarco is if you read through the book, and I read it uh, as, okay, the, uh, if you read it as a side asshole and a gig, that is absolutely right. This is what we call in the business, we call it high beta. It's high sensitivity. This is highly generating money. Great. But then what's the end game for this guy? He parks it into uh, ETFs, in <laughs> index funds. That's his end game. So he has a very high fast lane. And what mm -hmm. do you do with the fast lane? then you park it into something that is more safe and secure. Yeah. So, and, and that's what I argue in the book too, is that even if you are 
a multimillionaire, like investing this way isn't a bad way to go. It's a smart way to manage money in general, I would say. But and I agree, but I would say that it's a bit disingenuous. So, like taking a dump on Dave Ramsey because he does it slow and steady, whereas what DeMarco says is, well, you accelerate in the beginning, and then you do the slow and steady thereafter. But yeah. at the end of the day, it's still the same slow and steady. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a bit disingenuous here. But it's, again, this is yeah. where you where are you in the cycle? And I very much agree that if if your gig is to have a salary. For instance, I did a presentation on money, and there's somebody who was a, a janitor. I am trying to find the presentation here. I think I forwarded it to you. Uh, there was a janitor, but the guy had a very very frugal life, and this gentleman managed to uh, he managed to he managed to generate eight million dollars being a janitor because he saved everything mm. and invested and so on and so forth. So it it really depends on. And when and how do you get from beginner to intermediate to all this? Is actually you keep on educating yourself, and it's a continuous education. And I've been in the business of money for uh, the better part of two decades. So I started as an accountant. I, even though I'm French, I started. I, I took the US CPA, and I was an accountant at a Japanese company. So I tracked money, and then I worked on the stock market and so on and so forth. So. It really depends on educating yourself. And the thing that I really wanted to focus on is like, if we're in the business of money, assume that everybody is a charlatan. This is charlatan central. It's mm. not like, oh, innocent until proven guilty. It's, these guys are guilty. These guys are charlatan until they're proven of good faith. And mm -hmm. more often than not, you'll be right. <laughs> yeah. One thing I tell guys uh, when it comes to like, say my information on the podcast is uh, don't, don't take my word for it. Like try it out yourself, try it out yourself for it. Cause most of the stuff on my podcast, uh, you know, I give away for free. I give away for free, uh, as the podcast and you can go out and test this stuff. If it works for you eh, maybe check out the course, you know, uh, but don't just go and buy my course uh, without, you know, testing out some of the stuff first, you know? Mm. And, and, uh, and, uh, this is also the first thing that I write about in my book. Like I assume everybody's a charlatan me included mm -hmm. <laughs> starting with yours truly because you know what at, at times i probably lack integrity and so does everybody yeah so we want to be right we don't want to be in integrity in our lives yeah most people uh you know they're not selling a product because they're not trying to make money you know <laughs> like everyone's in business to make money at the end of the day you, know, you gotta you gotta think of it from that perspective you know no one's out here for altruistic purposes so, okay. So let me ask you this. Um, you once said that um, master traders are not smarter. They have smart, smarter trading habits. What are some examples of smarter trading habits? Oh, the number one thing that I see is, for instance, that I always start with this. Um, do, uh, do you have a trading journal? So what is this? It's like basically a trading log. I entered here, I entered there, I bought this quantity, blah, blah, blah. Do you have like an accurate track record of who you are? Oh, yeah, it's got to be somewhere. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. So, and trading is one of those things where if you don't have the distribution of your returns, if you're, I mean, I, I don't need to look at, uh, it's like a, a financial statements of a company. Mm -hmm. Like they tell you what they do. You look at the financial statements. Okay, now you know what they do and you know how good they are. 
So you, this is the first thing. So the first habit is to have a trading log, a trading journal. That's the number one thing. The second thing is stop losses. Or stop loss, I mean, uh, uh, my view on stop loss has changed, but the idea of getting out of bad trades. What is, just for people that are listening, because sometimes they'll hear terms like this and they don't know what that means. What what does stop loss mean? Uh, stop loss is like uh, when when the position is losing money, at that point, I cut it off. And you could set that up automatically, right? Like if it gets, if it drops to this price, sell okay. it, right? Okay. Or... So most softwares will allow you to do it automatically. Then you can have a trailing stop loss, which is like it follows. You can have a fixed stop loss, like beyond this point, that's it. Or you can have a discretionary, what's called a discretionary. Uh, but the, the thing about like having what is called resting orders, like if you have a, a fixed stop loss that is set on the broker's server, every now and then you have high frequency traders or market makers, not market makers, but high frequency traders who come in and test the broker's uh, server. So having resting, uh, uh, what's called a sleeping or resting orders on the on the broker side is not necessarily the most advantageous way to do it. But the idea behind this is it's like basically when you play poker, when you're at the $1 table, I, I, I knew nothing about poker and I'm Phnom Penh in Cambodia. My, my friends taught me poker in, in Vietnam, in Saigon. Then we went to Cambodia. And I knew nothing about poker, but I understood a lot about risk management. I cleaned that table. We said until four in the morning, I cleaned the table. And I understood nothing about poker, but I understood everything about risk management is, okay, past that certain point, that's it. You, okay, fold, 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 aggressive, fold, fold. And the idea behind this is uh, once you get into a position, your emotions get involved as well. Mm -hmm. So if you don't have to set a stop loss beforehand, it's like basically dating a chick who's like, you invest a coffee, then a, then a lunch, then a dinner, da, 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 da. and before you know it, you take her on, on vacations to the Caribbeans, but she's not really into you. Mm -hmm. And you, you're in a sunken position and, and you, want to, you want to prove it to yourself, you want to prove it to your ego. The stop loss, the idea of getting into a stop loss before your emotions get in there, and to the analogy of the of the the poker table is you know that okay past this point you fold past this point you fold and if you fold enough over time the ones that you win will be bigger than the ones that you fold so you got to do it beforehand yeah and you don't want to find yourself like investing and more and more and more you don't want because your emotions will you, your brain will hijack you from the one dollar table to the high roller table yeah does it make so sense it does make sense. So how do you, how do you, um, I guess, take that idea, but also understand the idea that when, uh, when the prices are low and dropping, uh, and you're, you're pulling your money out when the prices are dropping, you're locking your losses in then. So how do you, how do you handle that? I mean, it, uh, that's a very, very, I mean, you, you, okay. That's a very good question. It's a very sophisticated question as well. I mean, uh, okay. Uh, several ways to to answer this one so you're talking about buying the dips right as opposed to when do you know if you're buying the dip as opposed to when do you know there's a you're entering a bear market i'm i'm a, i'm assuming that what you're talking about with with this the risk management and stop lossing it, it's i mean you're you're basically buying individual stocks at that point is that 
accurate because then because it's like certain stocks are going to be doing better than others and you're and eventually by doing this you're going to come out on top is that okay. the so, idea with that okay so the, the basic idea of stop loss is before you enter you know you need to know your budget yeah, and okay. there can be like a fixed stop loss or you can be a volatility based stop loss volatility is how much the stock like moves up and down and it works across the board like for instance at the moment i'm doing quantitative uh, i'm doing quant which is like math for a uh, for somebody who does, um, sorry, uh, who does a crypto, and I know virtually nothing about crypto, by the way. Okay. Because, uh, because now, now this is where uh, I sort of understand the concept of uh, individual, you know, uh, I guess asset buying because I do buy crypto, and you can't buy like I like index funds when it comes to the uh, to the stock market because it's just simplified, it's just super fucking right. easy. Don't even have to think about it. Uh, right. But but in crypto, you're literally buying individual assets. You're buying Bitcoin. You're buying Ethereum. You're buying Litecoin. Whatever. Okay. And so uh, so for that, I I, I hear guys like um, uh, Miguel from Dollar Cost Crypto, and he talks about how you know you you let your money ride in Bitcoin, but you're basically day trading the the you know the smaller coins and stuff, and the that. Yeah, and that and that's where you get into st using stop losses and, and stuff like that. And he says, as long as your money's you know your 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 big money is in Bitcoin, like you're going to come out on top every time. And it's like this stuff you're gambling with a little bit. And I'm like, okay, that makes sense to okay. me. But okay, that's probably okay, so oversimplified. I, yeah. Okay. So I, I know Charlie. I had the lunch with Charlie several times. Charlie and Miguel. So I have great respect for them. Yeah. Uh, but they don't understand risk management. Ah. That's one thing. So. Risk management, it comes down to gain expectancy. So what is gain expectancy? Is your how many times you win on average? Let's say you play 100 times. How many times are you going to win on average? So let's say, and some of the best traders in the world, they win only 35 to 40%. So they win below 50%. But when they win, they hit, they hit, they hit big. Like It's like Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth, like, he stroke out a lot of times. But when he when he was uh, when he hit, he had also the highest uh, number of home runs. Mm -hmm. Got it. So, okay. so that's the spirit of the gain expectancy, and uh, and I, I can come back and comment on on Miguel. And I have great respect for this for this gentleman. Uh, so it's how many times we don't, have, you we don't have to talk about them. We can take it back to the stock market. Okay. Oh, and. Uh, so how many times you win on average times how much you, how much you win on average mm -hmm. minus how many times you lose times uh, how much you lose on average mm. and if you and it, what he says makes sense about bitcoin and shit coins because if we look at the this is something that actually i can talk about a little bit because i look at it from a quantitative perspective shit coin is a very seasonal when it's a bull market the ones that are the, the worst issues will always be lifted farther it's called sensitivity to the market it's called beta Mm. So, if you're long crypto, if your position, your default position is to be long crypto, and I believe that, it, and we can talk about why as an asset class, it, it starts to make sense. Yeah. It's, and uh, if you're long crypto, then trading the shit coins, it accomplishes two things. It gives you fast returns, and also it satisfies the necessary, the, the, the gambling habit that is mm. inherent with people who do, uh, but that is the gambling the gambling crave the gambling urge make it disposable income 
and crypto in and of itself should also be disposable income. Now we can talk about buckets and uh, uh, what's called asset allocation. Asset allocation is how much should be in which and so on and so forth. And crypto should be part of your portfolio. Now, can you short crypto? Yes, you can. It works very well, but it's not for the faint uh, for the faint heart. Like, and th this is also something that I really liked about your book is, uh, for instance, when you talk about the uh, one year rebalancing, mm. it works. And as a professional, I hate to admit that it works, but probably not for the reason. That <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's let's talk about that because I have that as one of my questions. Because you said. Um... <laughs> You told me last night, you're like, I hate to admit it, but it might beat professional fund managers. And I, and so why, why is that? And just for people that haven't read the book yet, what I'm talking about is um, I give, I give several different ways to allocate your funds. There's the Dave Ramsey method, which is 25. Like you basically, there's four buckets. You put it in and it's equal parts. You can do it that way. There's one that I, I stole from my acorns account, how they do it. There's one uh, called the all weather fund that uh, Ray Dalio came up with. I talk about that. And you can do your in, your your IRA the same way. Like you can allocate it however you want. But what I got from, from Tony Robbins' book was to rebalance it once a year. And that's basically as, you know, as you're putting money into these buckets, um, some are going to be making more money than others. Some are going to be making less. And it's eventually going to be a different percentage by the end of the year. So if you rebalance it, it puts it back into the original state it was once a year. Um, I don't know why that, I, like, I, I don't know enough about it to know why that's supposed to be I important. Um, but I just know that I do that and it works well for me. So so why, why does that beat um, a lot of professional fund managers? Okay. So it's very simple. Uh, the underlying thing is, for instance, uh, the Tony Robbins in his book Money, he, he took the formula from the All Weather Fund from Ray Dalio. Mm -hmm. And the allocation is 60-40, give or take, plus a bit of gold, plus this and that. But the 60-40 comes back to uh, Markowitz, uh, the effective frontier. And the, the mathematical formula behind this is called mean variance. So mean is what are the returns on in general divided by the volatility of the or say returns actually the square root of the of the of the volatility it's called mean variance and this will over time it, it gives like it gives a more stable steady eddy curve so this will get you into bonds will you will over allocate bonds over stocks Mm -hmm. So it doesn't give the best, the optimal returns. It gives the best volatility adjusted returns, which means that it will default to fixed income and uh, the ones that have the steadiest curve. So you have fixed income that goes like this. You have stocks that goes like that. <laughs> and then you have goals that go... And then you have crypto that goes... And then all the way through the floor. <laughs> and then which... And in order to... Uh, to have the smoothest curve, mean variance gives an allocation of 60-40. And why do I hate to admit that it beats fund managers built in? Over time, stocks beat everything. There's absolutely zero doubt about that. We have a winner. The winner is not real estate. The winner is not bonds. The winner is certainly not gold. The winner is certainly not currency like the dollar has plummeted. The winner over time, since, uh, since the dawn of the stock market, are stocks. Mm -hmm. That's it. 
There's no doubt about that. There's something called survivorship bias, but we'll talk, we don't need to, we need to get into that. So stocks and especially funds that and low cost funds, we can talk about that too, are the undisputed winners. No doubt about that. Now, the question is about the allocation. And if you want to have and what Ray Dalio and other people, and Tony Robbins of this world do, and myself included, is we privilege low volatility. We sacrifice high returns for low volatility. Mm -hmm. Because when you're, a punch, when, you're, when you're a pension fund, the last thing you want to tell your clients is, oh, yeah, this thing has gone 40%. Let's say, for instance, let's, let's take two stocks. Let's take A and B. A goes up 30% and then tanks 10%. Or tanks, uh, tanks, uh, goes up 30%, tanks 20%. It ends up at plus 10%. Mm -hmm. B goes up 0 0.5, 0 0.5, 0 0.5, 0 0.5, 0 0.5, and it ends at 10%. Mm -hmm. Which feels better? It feels better where it's just going up incrementally because you're not losing anything. Exactly. Yeah. If you're going up super fast and tanking super fast, you're out of a job. Mm -hmm. So the conclude the logical conclusion for that is if you privilege stocks, when stocks go up a lot, stocks are more volatile, cutting them back over time because you give them a haircut over time, it works. It's and when you say when you say give it a haircut, you're talking about the rebalancing, right? Like correct, correct. Okay. Correct. Giving them a haircut over time because things tend to mean revert. If the market shoots up, if your allocation all of a sudden you see the stock, whoa, that thing has gone for forty percent to 70 percent. It's a bit frothy. It's probably going to give back some of the gains. So giving a bit of a healthier cut makes sense. Now, Got do it. I agree? Do I agree with the sixty forty, like the fixed income or the low volatility? It depends on where you are, but my if you know it for yourself, I would do it the other way around. I would go seventy to eighty. I would go seventy percent in stocks and twenty percent in bonds, because over time, if you don't need this money, if this is discretionary, if this is investment money, you want to park this and front load all the risk. Mm -hmm. This is actually what Warren Buffett does. Warren Buffett is low beta on leverage, which is synthetically with the same thing. Mm, okay. Yeah, I, I don't talk about it in the book, but I mean, I think I think what Tony Robbins talks about is uh, I don't I don't know if it's Ray Dalio or John Bogle. They said that you wanted basically however old you are, you want that percentage in bonds to offset the risk or something. But if you look at the Dave Ramsey method, the 25, 25, 25 bucket, that's all that's almost all stocks. You know, I mean, you might look at your index fund that you put money in and there might be like an allocation of bonds in that fund. But for the most part, it's almost all stocks, <laughs> you know, and a lot of people don't like that risk. Uh, but I'm like, if you're young, if you're young, if you're 18 reading this book, you can deal with the risk. You know, if Correct. you're 50 or 60 close to retirement, you might start, you know, being a little more moderate with your investments. That's the way I look at it. So in, ex exactly. And in terms of asset allocation, in this case, the way I would do it is because whether you're in REIT, whether you're in stocks, I mean, REIT is a bit different, but if you're in stocks, if you're in ETF, if you're like, everything is very correlated. 
so you need to you need to have uncorrelated um, you need to have uncorrelated assets in mm -hmm. this case and bonds and stocks historically have been correlated but because of what the fed does they're uncorrelated so the traditional way to look at things is when the market when the economy is good you load up the boat you lo load up the truck on the stocks let it run up and when things are a bit frothy and so on and so forth or when the market is tanking you go back to uh, because the yields are also more attractive on the fixed income side or the wheat side Mm. So this is how it works. This is traditionally how it's been done. And uh, but you're right about the 25, 25, 25. This is a bit rustic. So this is why the process you asked. We come back to the same question. Like okay, you read Dave Ramsey, then you move to DeMarco, then you move to Tony Robbins, then you move to Ray Dalio, and so on and so forth. And you there's a constant need for education. I read mm -hmm. I read a ton of new white papers. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and that's where, so I, I started off with Dave Ramsey and he recommends putting all your money in mutual funds. And it wasn't until I read, uh, Tony Robbins book where they actually talk about index funds, which led me to John Bogle's, uh, the tiny book of common sense investing and where he talks about how index funds is the, now that he argues it's the only vehicle that has consistently beat the market. Um, and I don't know if that's true or not, but he did invent that. You know, what's that? Okay, so that's my book, Algorithmic uh, Short Selling with Python. And in my book, I actually demonstrate that um, they, I, I used to work in hedge funds, so it's long short, right? Yeah. So long side and short side, right? And uh, it's interesting because I also used to work with Fidelity, and it's amazing that every year, every year on record. ETF, low-tech, plain vanilla ETF, SPY, for instance. SPY, the classic low-tech, plain vanilla index that's, that mimics the market as clobbered, professional, sophisticated, active investors, fund managers, the elite of the elite, la creme de la creme, 63% on of the active managers have been clubbed like cute Canadian baby seals for every year on record. Mm. <laughs> so that tells you something that, oh yeah, well, it, it doesn't give you better than the index. Well, still, it's still better than what you guys do. <laughs> and then at the bottom of the pile are the active uh, long short guys, but for different reasons. What, um, just for the people listening that might not be understand these different terms, what is the difference between an index, an ETF, or an index ETF? Okay, ETF stands for exchange traded funds. So ETF is, they, most of them, there are two types of them. There are the passive ones that are supposed to mimic one index that can be at the S&P. It, uh, it can be gold, it can be oil, it can be pretty much anything. So they are, they, they are traded throughout the day. So they, they, there's active rebalancing throughout the day, and they're supposed to mimic the returns of the index. Mm. Then there's exchange-traded notes, which are also traded throughout the day. And those ones are more, in terms of structure, I forgot, uh, I forgot what they, the, the, the clause in the PPM, but there's something in there. Uh, sorry. That's okay. <laughs> and, then, and then there are active funds, the mutual funds. The difference between ETF and mutual funds Mutual funds are active managers. So within that, those active managers, they basically, oh, I, I like Apple. I don't like Ford. 
I like uh, Amazon. I don't like uh, GM, for instance, whatever. Mm-hmm. So they make active bets. You see, the, the S&P is composed of 500 stocks, and uh, 40 of those stocks clock about 50% of the index of the, of the market, mm-hmm. of the index. So Google itself is 12%. Then you have Apple, Amazon, blah, blah, blah. So actually you have it here in the, this evening. So the, the, or the whole decomposition. So 50 stocks, roughly 50 stocks cover more than 50% of the index weight. So in your portfolio, if you overweight some of these guys, you already take what is called an active bet versus the market. Let's say, let's say for instance, Apple is six, six percent, mm-hmm. give or take. I don't know. It doesn't matter. It can be five or whatever. And then I buy 7% of my portfolio into Apple. The excess weight over the index is 2%. Make sense? Yeah. And then I overweight. And by making those bets, it's called active money. By making those bets, I I make the bet that actually I will beat the market. Now, the difficulty for a lot of active managers is to consistently beat the market over time because we are encouraged to take bets but when we take bets, and how do we take bets? Is by buying small and discovered ca- uh, small caps. Mm-hmm. If you buy the next Amazon or the next Netflix when nobody knows about it, you win. The problem is if you do too much of this and too little of buying Apple, when you fuck up because you will immediately inevitably fuck up. Uh, in this case. <laughs> Yeah. You call it a tracking error problem. You're, you're a tracking error. It's, oh, you don't mimic the index enough. So on the one hand, we are marginally incentivized. So we, we incentivize to basically take marginal bets versus the index. Got it. And for that, we are remunerated. So the fees, what is important for the, for the retail investor is how much you pay. Right, which is what I get into, and that's what I learned about index funds. Is on the back end, there's less fees and taxes, and that's why it's a, it's smarter for the the average investor to go with index funds as opposed to managed mutual funds. Correct. And what Bogle, uh, John Bogle used to say is, uh, in investing, you uh, what you get what you do. Uh, oh, you get what you don't see. No, you get what you see. So, as in, the returns. The returns that you get, like to give you an example, the average uh, the average return of the index over the last fifty years is nine percent. The average return of the investors of the retail investors is three point six percent. And how does it come? It's very simple. It's a compounded annual growth rate. Is all this comes primarily from the management fees? How much you pay for this? So the ETF, and I hate to say that as an active manager, is uh, the ETF is a pass-through uh, vehicle, so it's more tax efficient, and it's lower fees. So whenever you choose an ETF, and not all ETF are, are built uh, the same. There's a fantastic book uh, by Andreas Kleino about this, where he demonstrates that actually, depending on how they restructure and how they rebalance, ETFs are supposed to mimic the same index have different returns in the end. But that, that's a different conversation altogether. But if you're a retail investor, get into ETF. And as far as the allocation and the rebalancing, maybe one year is a bit too slow. But for the first year, I would do a one-year rebalancing, and then you can do it every six months or something. But you you le- recommend doing it uh, more frequently? Maybe, yeah. Maybe uh, six months to, to three quarters. 
Yeah. Okay. So, uh, one year can be a bit too slow, but the less you look at it, there's also a very direct correlation. And I know that firsthand. I know that firsthand is the more people look at the portfolio, the lower the returns. The returns are inversely correlated with the with the frequency at which people uh, touch their portfolio. And it, it is very, very simple. When we show up at work, we want to work, mm -hmm. right? So when a fund manager shows up at work, what does he want to do? He wants to trade stocks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he gets paid for that. The problem is if you do it too much, then there's slippage, transaction costs, blah, 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 like in and out, like oh, doing small things. But this has a cost. Yeah. So the more you forget about it, the better it takes care of itself. That's and that's that's really why I like I like the index funds. I like the the just setting it and forgetting it. And it's just it's the dollar cost averaging for me, and it's the long game, you know. And I'm not trying to time the market. I'm not trying to you know uh, read this one company's thing. And, and and that's good if 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 guys like to do the day trading stuff. It's just it's not for me. And so that's why I like just the simplicity of the index funds. But, um, but yeah, there's, there's a lot of information out there that guys can learn if they wanted to get into more active trading, I would say. So in my book, I talk about, uh, actually, you know what, uh, first, first of all, I'm very grateful for the uh, day traders. Thank you very much. Thank, thank, because of you guys, I can buy bigger presents for my kids for Christmas. So keep your day trading. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Appreciate that. <laughs> but uh, in my book, I talk about something called sector rotation. So uh, this is this is this is already very advanced. This is what a, my book is for: I'm a practitioner to other practitioners. Mm -hmm. Sector rotation, because you know, like there's a lot of cacophony surrounding the markets. But what really matters, if you want to start trading actively, is what sectors are outperforming versus what are underperforming. And the markets mm. reward different sectors at different times. Now, I would agree with Paul. Like, if unless you want to make it really professional style, don't don't start to to compete uh, with uh, that, that. Don't start to compete with pros. You can't you can't show up with a Ford Taurus and expect to beat Formula Ones. Mm -hmm. This is not how shit works. But if you want to do that, the first the first two mistakes that I see retailers doing is that they undercapitalize, and they have uh, unrealistic expectations. That's number two, and the number three is uh, they don't have a system. If investment is a process, automation is a logical conclusion. Mm -hmm. Like guys, oh, I want to buy that stock. Okay, cool. What's your exit strategy? Uh -huh. What's my what? You know, it's like it's like marriage. If you don't have a prenup, you won't like the exit strategy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that exit strategy is going to be forced on you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't have a stop loss, you don't want the state to. You don't want the government to give you an exit, a stop loss. <laughs> right, right. That makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> Let me uh, let's let's uh, change gears a little bit. We've been talking a lot about stocks, but. Um, now, in my book, I agree with with Dave Ramsey when it comes to owning your own house, because uh, he now Dave Ramsey says that owning a house is the biggest asset you'll ever have. Now, if you read uh, if you read Robert Kiyosaki's book, he says it is not an asset because it takes money out of your pocket. 
So, but, but I, I agreed with Dave Ramsey because, you know, having owned a couple of houses, uh, both of them have gone up in price and when I sold them I actually made money on it. So to me, that's an asset, but let's talk about that. Cause you're, you're an expert on this. So what, um, what do you say about it? Okay. So that's a, that's a fantastic question. Uh, again, it depends on where you are. So for instance, let's take an example of a, of a common friend that, who was interviewed on your podcast, somebody for whom I have a, a really respect, Mike. Mike, for instance, he came out of, of he, he just coming out of a difficult situation, so he's rebuilding his financial health, right? Mm-hmm. And rebuilding your financial health and wanting to buy a house right now, it doesn't make sense. Like, mm-hmm. wait, buying a house is at the end of a cycle. Okay. I've got this, I have my set gig, I make this much money, da 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 Cool. Now I can think about that. I would I would agree with that because uh, especially when the housing housing markets have big boom and bust cycles. And I, I think we're at the top like we're getting close to the top of a of a of a you know of the bubble right now because I'm starting to see prices being like completely unaffordable that is swear to god happens every couple every you know 10 years or so and then it, it corrects itself and the market corrects itself and so it's like if, if the if the housing market is getting so much where it's completely unaffordable to you stay in the rents don't don't go try to buy a house at the top of the market it's the dumbest thing you'll ever do but keep an eye on the market because when that crashes that some bitch crap crashes down and it always does that's when <laughs> that's when you uh you you know you save your money and you wait until you're in a better financial position to do it. That's what I've always, that's what I've done. Um, but anyway, I'll, I, I digress. So, and, and you're absolutely right. I mean, the affordability is, a, is one key metric for that. The second thing is, um, okay, I, for instance, in the US, the, the median average savings is $400. So if you have a house, and your mortgage is about two thousand dollars. You cannot afford to lose your job. Mm-hmm. That means that that means that you'll have to swallow yard of shit after yard of shit after yard of shit to keep your job, and there's nothing you can do about it. So this ties you into you're forced into being you're forced to play defense in your life. Yeah. Okay. Makes sense. Which, which I, which I, you know, I, I do address in the anyone could be rich because I talk about having an emergency fund and then, to, you know, once you get out of debt, if you have any debt, if you don't have any debt, then just go to the next step, which is to save six months worth of savings so that you have money at all times. So in case you do lose your job, you're not, you're not fucked, <laughs> you know. Uh, but most people don't do that. Most people don't do that. They're, you know, they, they rely on credit cards when things go bad. And it's like, well, dude, if you lose your job, you can't pay your credit card either. So having that emergency fund is paramount. Yeah, you could, I guess you could sustain, yeah, I guess you could rehydrate on whiskey, but it's probably not going to be healthy. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I think that would dehydrate you. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah no, that, you make a very good point. Yeah. And the third reason is you got to look at how the banks see it. So, for instance, I own 96 apartments. I own seven buildings. I own two houses. Uh, actually, three. Yeah, two and a half. So, anyhow, and uh, you got to look at how the bank sees it. 
So for instance, let's say that your mortgage is $2,000 and you earn $4,000. From a bank's perspective, you're high risk. Mm. Let's say you earn $10,000 and your mortgage is $2,000. From a bank's perspective is, well, okay, what else do you want to do? Now, the second thing that from a bank's perspective, I own 96 apartment and I live in none of the houses that I own. All the houses that I have are rented out. And all of the apartments are rented out. So from that perspective, they look at it, okay, this is a business. This is an asset. But mm. if you live in your house and your mortgage is, let's say, 30%, because people tend to ma max out their mortgage, which actually is not a smart idea at all. I agree. Yeah. Just because your realtor says you can... Uh, afford this and that that the bank will give you a loan for five hundred thousand dollars doesn't mean you should take that you should go with what's more affordable to you maybe a maybe a two hundred fifty thousand dollar house is more your speed you know mm. like there's no reason to have a mcmansion if you're not filthy stupid rich you know and you know the funny part about filthy stupid rich people a lot yeah. of those business people is actually they don't own the house in which they live mm. You'd be surprised the number of filthy rich people. What they own is usually the underlying land, but the house is usually owned by their corporation. And that's usually a, a tax purposes type thing, right? Because, um, yeah, that's one of the things I love about Robert Kiyosaki's books is he talks about how rich people don't pay income tax. And he talks about how a lot of that is, you know, they, they have corporations and any kind of work that they do it, it, it gets paid to their corporation or whatever. And they do that. So they don't have to pay income tax because income tax is ridiculous. Um, so that, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. So, so you don't own the house you live in, whatever corporation you own owns that. And then Correct. it's an asset. Correct. And then, and then you can expense everything and then all the repairs and so on and so forth. So, what I would do, for instance, if I was starting, I mean, actually, it's funny because I uh, I was interviewed on a on with on a podcast in Japan about Akia. Akia is like empty houses in Japan. Japan mm. has like there there's this thing where they give houses away. Actually, they don't give them away. The very very good deals are gone. And if you want to have a free house, you can. But I'm not sure you'd like it. Mm. <laughs> it's like a boat, you know. Like somebody gives you a boat, like, uh, what's hey, wrong it's with great. it? <laughs> exactly and then you have the maintenance going behind no thanks i had i used to own a sailboat i used to own a yacht and uh the two best days of uh yachts are i mean you know yachts are likewise the two best days of uh I, i'm not going there, <laughs> I'm well, not going I've, there. I've heard i've heard that if you want to just completely waste hundreds of thousands of dollars own a own a boat you know oh, for, oh, for sure for sure you're just constantly paying for the upkeep and maintenance on that thing. And you never get to enjoy it. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, it's a hole in the, uh, like, uh, it's a hole in the water in which you keep on pouring money, but to come back to the house, you got to think about how the banks look at it. The banks look at it as an asset, look at you as an, I look at the house as an asset because you don't own the house, the banks own the house. Mm-hmm. And uh, they look at it as an asset if you don't live in there, because it means that they will have an income stream that will cover for the mortgage. Mm. That's the first thing you need to look at. I mean, it's like the dating market. It's how do you, it's not what you want. To, oh, I want, a, I want a guy who does 66666. Six, 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 six. It doesn't matter. They're not buying. 
<laughs> they're not buying. <laughs> so uh -huh. you can say whatever you want. But if nobody's buying, so in this case, it doesn't matter what you want with your house. What matters is how the bank sees you and how the bank sees the, the house. If the bank sees the, if you're not living in the house, then you can supersize. If you're living in the house, you should actually have smaller than your budget. Because Got if it. anything happens to you, you don't want to be on the tarmac. You don't want to be strained and you don't want to be stressed out. That yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, the way the way I've I've got it set up is literally I, I live by by how I laid it out in the book. So I have I have actually like a year's worth of savings. So if I did get laid off today, I, I have some runway before I have to find another job. I can still make the payments on the house and and like I, I talk about the book, like the just the cost of housing out here. My house has doubled in uh, in just a couple of years. So if I sold it, I would actually make quite a bit of profit on it. And I bought it with a VA loan, so there was no money down. So it's literally, you know, one of those situations that Robert Kiyosaki talks about, where you borrow the money and it's like it becomes free money. You know, it's just like printed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> out of here you know so that's why i look at it like it's an asset but i hear i i understand what you're saying um i need to i need to sell my house to a corporation my corporation agreed yes agreed. The, the way to structure the <laughs> way to structure this uh one more thing is yeah. um two two more things actually uh I, I was listening to what you were saying two more things a lot of people try to refinance their house and then they see it as an atm wrong yeah idea. i don't i don't like that idea yeah it's a wrong idea. This is your, 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 your house. If you do that, you extract the value out of your house, like to buy a television, to buy a car, to do some stupid shit. But the value that you extract out of your house should be reinvested in your house or should be reinvested into other real estate. Assets of the same. You see, there are assets and liabilities. And when they match in the duration and nature, you are balanced. But you mm -hmm. don't want to finance long-term assets with, short, with your credit card. Similarly, you don't want to find short-term assets like your television with the value that you extract from your house. This is the definition of stupidity. And unfortunately, this, this, this is the propaganda. This is the marketing that a lot of companies uh, push down our throat. That's the first thing. You were talking about free money. Yeah. Uh, would, you, would you like to know how I got into real estate in Japan? Because this is really fun. Yeah, yeah. Why don't you go ahead and tell us that story? So... Um, the, the day after uh, my uh, wedding, I, I nearly died. I had a kitesurfing accident. Uh, so I was wheeled, on in, wheeled into the ICU. So I thought, oh, shit, I need to find a, I need to find a cash-generating business. And my uh, colleague of mine was doing real estate. So I got into this real estate. And at that time, the yields were very high. I bought my first building in Japan three months after the Fukushima earthquake. Fukushima like this. Uh, uh, well... There's uh, was that uh, Chernobyl and Fukushima and the Three Mile Island are the three worst uh, atomic uh, disaster mm. in the history of mankind. And Fukushima is, is arguably the second the biggest, right. the second worst. So anyhow, so I bought my building, and when I went to see the banker, and I speak for uh, like I, I do all the negotiations in Japanese because I mean. I speak the financial creole like it's in my DNA. And the banker looks at me like, what's wrong with you? I'm like, fantastic question. Thank you very much for asking. How much time you got? 
Dude, <laughs> let's, get, let's get back to business. Yeah, so yeah. I bought the, <laughs> so I got my first building a year and one day later because it's Japan. A year and one day later, I was put on the mailing list and distribution, and we could get we could get access to deals. So I bought two other buildings, and then at that time, my first building was ninety five percent down. My second building, the banks they didn't put hundred percent down; they put hundred and eight percent down. They, like the value of the building plus the sales tax, and all I had to pay was registration because at that time. The yield was so high and real estate was so out of fashion in Japan that nobody wanted to do real estate. I mm. remember like I did a deal in um, 2017 and I could still see the ink like drying on the paper. I just did a small deal, like about $1.2 million or something like this. And I, I was watching the, the ink drying on the paper. And then the banker looks at me like, hey, dude, you want to do another real estate deal? Yeah, mid-size, mid-biggish size. Okay, cool. Guy drops like this thick of paper, $2.5 million. Oh, my man. Uh, wait, until when? I mean, how much time do I have to think about it? Like, can I just think about it? Yeah, you got until the end of the week. I look at my watch. I'm like, it's Friday evening. It's 5 o'clock. And the banker, like, it doesn't, and they were, all of them, like, they are like, doesn't miss a beat like that's what i'm saying you have until the end of the week yeah yeah <laughs> give it to yeah me. but you have about five minutes to figure this out yeah <laughs> before we before we close shop like, okay give it to me done <laughs> and uh, and then i walked home and like well today i didn't buy one building i just bought three <laughs> but i imagine that uh so at that time you said that people they were trying to stay out of the real estate business, but, uh, but you got in. And so I imagine it was lucrative for you then. It was extremely lucrative, but it was like the tail, uh, tail. you see, people believe that, Oh, the house prices and real estate goes up. Uh, or, or, when is in like, first of all, real estate does well in inflation, but Japan was coming out of 30 years of deflation. So mm -hmm. like the, telling people, Oh, I own real estate in Japan. People will look at luck with disgust. Oh, so, so, um, so I got in and now people look at me like I'm a genius. That's what happens when you, uh, you end up buying at the bottom of the market and it's just like, it, you know, sometimes it's just smart to just wait things out, you know, and, and just sort of keep an eye on stuff. You know, don't, when everyone's saying to like, go buy shit right now, go buy it. Go. That's when, you know, like, especially when it comes to crypto, going back to crypto, when you know everyone's pumping Bitcoin, oh, you got to buy now, bro. It's, it's it's only going up. It's going to the moon, bro. It's like, chill out, especially if you haven't already been investing in it because that is so one cool. of the most volatile goddamn markets I've ever seen in my life. And it will it will tank. It will tank in a month. And um, that's when you want to start dollar cost averaging. <laughs> like if you're going to so cool. just start, wait until after the the bloods in the streets you know yeah fomo fomo it's called fear of missing out so yeah. and uh i had a I had a very interesting story about that like back in 2008 i was in uh, no seven seven or six i was in neiman brothers and they were they were like a bunch of consumer finance companies and a whole bunch of hedge fund guys i remember like one guy a big big thing that he was he, he big alpha man he walks in like Simon, and he just slams it away. He walks in like Simon. I nearly fertilized my pants, my man. Chill. And then 
everybody it was a big love contest big uh, love feast for all these guys for the consumer finance and then i walk out the the meeting after that and i call my boss like peter let's show the shit out of them like why why is that so good it's very simple it was a big fucking love fest in there it means that they're all loaded up to their eyeballs and there's nobody else buying mm-hmm. the only way it can go when there's a structural change in the law is down mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's just a matter of time whether we sit in front of it or sit at the back of it yeah and we showed it and that thing like this because it was a change in the law that actually after that the consumer finance lost about 80 percent of their value that we didn't stay for the whole we i mean uh yeah, we didn't say for the whole thing, but we cu- we caught the first wave. So when everybody and the grand, you know, the famous uh, Bernard Baruch, uh, Bernard Baruch in uh, the two thousand, uh, the nineteen twenty nine uh, stock crash. This is a great story, actually, great mm. great story. He went down to uh, to have a, to the shoe shine guy, and the shoe shine guy like, hey, you're Mister Baruch, right? You work on Wall Street, right? You're this big uh, big baron. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the guy gave him a stock tip. And uh, to which, like, Bernard Barrett gave him money for the shoe shine plus a tip. He walked up to the US offices, let's sell. Mm. If the news has traveled all the way down to the shoe shine boy, who's so confident about the stock market that I should be buying this or that, everybody's loaded. <laughs> let's sell. That's a, actually, yeah, that's a good point, too, because, um, one thing I like to bring up on the podcast too is a lot of guys start thinking that, uh, you know, especially when it comes to investing in the stock market, they think about the Great Depression, the great stock market crash. It's like, one, it, it didn't go to zero. And two, although there were a lot of people that were suffering during that time, there was a lot of people that got rich during that time. And not everyone was completely wrecked. And so it's like, if you are smart, even during bad times, you can come out on top, you know? Yeah, actually, the uh, the way I look at bear markets is a bit different. Is I look at bear markets as transfer of wealth. Mm. So you have uh, you have forced sellers with patient buyers. So yeah. the idea there is always keep. For instance, you were talking about your house, or your house has doubled, but this is not wealth that you can extract readily. Yeah. The same with me with my buildings. Yeah, I'm about this big, but I collect this little rent. Right. So on paper it looks good. In real life, it's a bit complicated. So always, uh, uh, I'm a partisan of always keep some power dry. And when I mean by keeping your power dry, it can be invested, but something that you can liquidate fairly easily. Because one thing that I've noticed, and this is this happens every bear market, there's something called a term structure or the duration of the assets that you have. You have liabilities that come and you have to pay every month, so on and so forth. And then you have also assets. And if those assets don't meet the liabilities and the cash flow don't meet the liabilities, you'll be uh, you'll be a forced seller. So the best time to buy luxury watches, uh, wines, wines, this is what I do usually. Um, sorry. Uh, wines or like second house and all these is when there's a bear market. Because mm. all these things that sold for $2 million, all of a sudden you can buy them for 500 bucks if you have the liquidity behind you. So this is, I see bear markets as transfer of wealth. Does it make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That does make sense. Um, we're at an hour here. Let me ask you one last question that we'll wrap up. So 
before we went, we started recording, you were telling me about trading edge, gain expectancy of marriage. And there's a, there's an actual <laughs> formula about uh, figuring out what, uh, what the gain expectancy of marriage is for men. Uh, can you break that down for guys? Okay. So gain expectancy is as we, as we saw earlier is how often you win times how much you win on average my, minus how often you lose times how much you lose on average. Let's say, for instance, you have a, you play 100 times. And then out of those 100 times, you win 40% of the time. But every time you win more than you lose, you have a positive gain expectancy. Okay. Right? So when we apply this to marriage, so let's start with how much you lose first on average. So you split from marriage onward 50-50. Done. So the start, the money that you made, fifty percent for you, fifty percent for the for your uh, ex-spouse. Good. Now, let's look at the win rate and and uh, lose rate, loss rate. Now, people think, oh yeah, this is the divorce rate. No, this is the variable that over which you have no control. Remember that women file for divorce at eighty percent of the time. Like you can be like the nicest guy, and blue pill guys know that I did everything she wanted. Well, no. Where did you expect? The one that she's miserable, you give a woman everything she wants, she's not going to be happy. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. So far, so good. So all the blue pill guys who did happy wife, happy life, they're like, they're, there's a long queue of them in divorce court. So the, what matters is who files? In a no-fault no divorce is who files? That's, that's really, this is something over which you have no control. So that puts the win rate at 20%. Mm -hmm. And the so 80% loss rate. All of a sudden, you have a, you have a differential of minus 40, 0 0.4. Now, let's put the kids in the mix. You're, you're 10, 12 years in, you have two kids. Okay. When was the last time you heard like, okay, uh, Johnny divorced uh, Susie, and then Susie is now sleeping in the car with the two kids in tow? Yeah, yeah never. Heard that. Never, yeah. right? Yeah. So the court will obviously will maintain stability with the kids. The kids grew up in this house. The kids will stay in the house. Now, who gets custody of the children at 90% win rate? Oh, women do. Right? So what does it mean? Johnny is going to sleep in his car. And when we talk about the assets, when we talk about, like, families, what is generally the largest, the bulk of the assets is the house. Mm -hmm. So it's the mortgage. Like... All right, he made however many. The house is worth 400, 500. Well, the house goes to Madame. So then let's go back to the minus 20 to begin with. All of a sudden, it turned into a minus 0 0.8 or, or worse. So, structurally, even in the best case scenario, because of the 80% filing rate by women, you have a negative gain expectancy. When you put the kids and the house in the mix, you have a negative infinite expectancy, right? <laughs> so that gives, so that gives the basically, that shit don't work. <laughs> That's yeah. one. Now, when for every year on record, the correlation goes to one. Correlation doesn't mean causality, but when every year for year on record, the R square, which is causality, goes also to one. When this is perpetuated in infinitum, a negative gain expectancy perpetuated at infinitum carries a, an interesting small statistical property, very cute, adorable statistical property called certainty of ruin. 
Uh-huh. You're a dude, you get married. It's not about if you you're gonna get fucked, it's about how much and how far. Yeah. Yeah. It's like man, even Sorry. if you're successful, even if you're in a successful marriage, I mean, just the cost of maintaining uh, a wife is you're you're talking about you're talking about lots of money, you know. Well, that, that that is a deal that we know as men entering the deal. Yeah. Now the problem is about the problem is about the exit, mm -hmm. and and uh, the the problem is about the law. For instance, and you also talked about this in your book, like oh, even if you have common law marriage, now it's deemed like marriage, and you can be liable, and you can be liable yeah. for alimony and so on and so forth. So, it's it's an extremely difficult proposition. This is a proposition that is, that carries a certain a probabilistic probability of certainty of ruin for guys. So it's extremely unattractive. So marriage has priced itself out of the market. Yeah, for I would say it has for guys that have either experienced it or guys that uh, have read, you know, read books like mine and they learn from our mistakes. <laughs> but guys that guys that haven't and they still have the the idealistic fantasy of living happily ever after with their you know, Snow White or their Cinderella, they they're gonna have to experience it the hard way. You know, unfortunately. But if we look at it over time, there's no there's no wonder. It's, I mean, I don't believe that it's because of the red pill that the, the marriage is plummeting. It's because no, the legislation is punitive for guys. Yeah, yeah. I think so, I think a lot of guys, uh, even if they haven't found the red pill space, because I think you know, guys, guys don't find the red pill space when they're happy in a relationship. They just don't, you know, but even guys who haven't found the, the, the red pill yet, um, a lot, of, there's been enough divorces where kids have grown up in single mom households that they know that their dad got wrecked and it's just not a good idea to do it. You know? So there's enough of those that it's just, it's killing off the marriage industry, you know, which I think is good. It needs to, it needs to go away or it needs to change at least. And, you know, for instance, I live in Japan, and um, I, uh, there was a study done about this. I mean, Japan is capital is world capital of suicide. Right? Is it? Oh wow! Oh, I didn't know that. sure. I mean, Japan. I mean, Japan has towered. Uh, Japan and Finland have towered uh, the statistics of suicide forever. And I mean, Japan is a very harmonious society, but people delete themselves, self delete themselves. And, is that because uh, they do it for the for honor and shit? You know, like the. Oh, uh, this is unfortunately you know, this is gonna seppuku <laughs> harakiri. This has gone a long time, unfortunately. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, but I like. I mean, this was really honor. This was really the old code. I love it because it means really people took responsibility, but not mm -hmm. people that quietly delete themselves out. And uh, the number one cause of suicide by far, like nothing comes remotely close nothing comes remotely close by five the 45 to 60 45 to 65 the number one cause of, of divorce of suicide by far is divorce in japan in japan and i, and I would say probably the world around for the same age class hmm. because when you do like imagine you've been living under the happy life happy wife da, 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 mantra forever and all of a sudden you lose your house you lose your kids you lose your financial safety, all your safety net, and so on. So you lose everything. Yeah. And there's nothing to live for. 
it's like uh, in the UK, they say that it's uh, people who just gone through a divorce, they're 14 times more likely to commit suicide. I believe it, yeah. And in, in Japan, is uh, you can also lose your job because, for instance, I, and I know, and uh, I, I've been volunteering in uh, parental alienation gr uh, groups, and the number one thing that w people worry about is that you've got to contact other people because all of a sudden the world collapse around them and if the allegations of uh, false allegations or even proven allegations of domestic violence it doesn't take much you know yeah then uh, people can lose their job and they've done and it has happened so people become extremely fragile so yeah. all these stats put together they, it doesn't paint a good picture and personally i wish that they make the law for marriage even more punitive because then that would be game over because then it would, it would just really make people think twice about like why what's the benefit really what's there's no benefit in it which and is what i more, argue in the book there's no benefit in it <laughs> exactly i mean when you ask women oh what's the what's the benefits of being married like they, they come with a laundry list of answers or and, and what's the and when you ask them what's the benefit for guys well married guys are richer than uh okay these are my favorite married guys live longer and uh okay that's probably true but if we look at the the demographics of people who are married is that people who manage to secure a partner all the, the low class blue collar who do the dangerous job they don't get married easily mm -hmm. and uh, the second thing is oh married people are richer well it's because the statistics are organized either married or you're single if you're divorced you fall back into single after half your shit has been taken away <laughs> And obviously, yeah, you're gonna be rich. <laughs> you're pretty poor usually after that. There's a big reset. Yeah, Laurent, this is uh, this has been a very fun conversation. Let me bring this up here. Why don't you uh, give us some parting words and let us know where uh, people can find you online? Oh, thank you, uh, thank you very much. It's been a fun conversation. I'm sorry I was a bit scattered and all over the place. Uh, it's uh, okay. It's a lot. Of, I mean, a lot of this stuff, this investing stuff, it's it's it can be really complicated, especially for guys that don't understand it. That's, that's why I tried to break it down simply, you know, for like the layman in my book. But I mean, guys like Laurent, I mean, if you guys really want to get into the nitty gritty and, and go to the next level, follow guys like Laurent. He knows what the fuck he's talking about. Thank you. Thank you. So I do, uh, Oh, I had a book at one point. Uh, I forgot where I put it. Uh, I, I published a book, and I'm on the second version of it. It's called Algorithmic Short Selling with Python. So uh, this is a book, if you're already investing, if you know what you're talking about, this is a book by practitioners for practitioners. So this is not your entry-level kind of book. I used to write a lot of uh, stuff on Quora, and I have a particular writing style where I like to vulgarize and make things uh, accessible. And I like to use images that people can understand. Like, for instance, stop loss. You don't want stop loss are not necessarily effective because it's like driving. You don't want your airbag to blow up in your face every time you you pull the brakes. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the traffic light, like, it would be very ineffective. So I used to write on Quora. Now I'm very I'm very active on something called School.com Mind Crystallis. I do it with the ryan fowler whom you interviewed on this podcast yeah ryan's a good dude he uh yeah we did a whole episode on um uh, hypnosis and basically you know fixing guys subconscious traumas yeah so we work together uh on mind chrysalis and uh 
what do we do in a nutshell is we all have, uh, we all suffer. And this is a, this is a subject for another entirely different conversation about the, the three layers of the, the money game and so on and so forth. But uh, mm -hmm. uh, so we, Ryan works on I'm not good enough. Like we mm -hmm. all have a version of I'm not good enough. I'm not enough. Or I don't belong in the group. Or I don't know. The, the, I don't fit in. Yeah. Or, or like the rage and all this. So this is toxic shame, and he cures it via guided meditations, hypnosis, and all those techniques. And we work uh, together on uh, this cool uh, mind chrysalis. It's free, and the content that we put in there is absolutely mind-blowing. Like, this is the kind of stuff that uh, we wouldn't be surprised if people take it away and, uh, and make paying courses for that. And it's entirely free because our mission, our message, is really we want to help people. Better people, yeah. And, well, great. Uh, this is Thank you. Well, I, I will. Uh, I'll be sure to link to that. Your book is it available on like Amazon or or where? Can yeah, you yeah. It, it is available on Amazon. Wait for the second edition. So don't buy it now. Uh, okay. There's plenty more stuff. More stuff, and there'll be like plenty of scripts in there. Uh, the so you'll be able to run like uh, was it screeners? People always talk about signals, like what should I buy, when should I buy that? It'll be in there. So there'll, okay. there'll be plenty of. Uh, it, but again, this is a, this is a fun book to read. Uh, but if you're just new to the stock market, it's probably a bit. You should probably go with Venthar, and then you can read my book, and then and so on and so forth. Okay. Well, then I'll tell you what. I will link to uh, your Twitter. And I'll link to school.com, the mind chrysalis uh, URL. And then you guys could follow Laurent on Twitter. And then when he has the second edition available, you can scoop it up. Thanks. Sound good? Cool. All right. Laurent, thank you so much, man. I'm going to give you right, what time is it there in Tokyo? Uh, hold on. Give me one second. It's uh, 11 15 morning. Uh, in the morning. Okay. Well, you have a good rest of your day. It's uh, 7 14 p.m. my time. So I'm going to go eat some dinner now. <laughs> thank you, thank you for much. joining me, man. You're welcome back anytime. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Paul. Laurent, thank you for joining me today. You're welcome back anytime. Good conversation. I learned a lot from you, man. Uh, a lot of this stuff for a lot of guys, it is so hard to grasp, so hard to understand the markets and all that kind of stuff. That's why I try to break it down as simply as possible. That's why I like index funds. You don't have to, you have to think about it, right? You just have to, there's, there's certain things to look at. Otherwise, it's like set it and forget it and you play the long game, you know. But if you guys do want to learn how to trade, right, how to trade smartly, how to do stuff like shorts and and, and, and that kind of thing, definitely give my man Laurent a follow and, and definitely check out what he and and uh, and Ryan Fowler are doing with with um, the, the mind crystallist. So I'm going to drop a link for that in the chat. Um, but definitely follow those guys. They have a lot of good stuff, a lot of good content. All right, guys, that's all I have for this episode. If you guys haven't done so, please like, subscribe, hit those notifications. Most of you guys have done that already. <laughs> uh, drop a comment. Leave a comment below. Any comment will do your favorite emoji. It doesn't really matter. Follow me on social media. The links are in the description. Guys, join the email list, list.comeonman.pod.com. I'll send you a bunch of free goodies for that. Get the book, all right? We talk about the financial stuff in this book. That's one of, it's actually one of my favorite subjects. I just don't, I don't talk about it a lot on the podcast. Most guys come here for dating and relationship advice, but 
If you guys haven't saved for retirement right now, you're 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 behind the eight ball. You guys need to you guys need to do it. All right. It's it's paramount because no one's coming to save you. No one's going to take care of you in your old age. You got to take care of you. Okay. So it's it's really it's really important that you guys learn this stuff. And I break it down so simply in this book. Uh, anybody can do it. It literally anybody can do it. Okay. And uh, check out my practical law of attraction course, guys, loa.comeonmanpod.com. Once you get your mind right, everything else falls into place. Join the beer club. The next meetup is January 18th. And then coaching is available at gumroad.comeonmanpod.com. That's all I got. We'll see you guys Wednesday for the live stream. This has been the Come On Man podcast. New full episodes served hot every Monday morning on your favorite podcast platform of choice. So subscribe now. Follow Paul on social media. The links are in the description. Now, go out and get it.